0: Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis.
1: We're back on the Carolina Newsmakers with John Hood, who's the president of the John William Pope Foundation, and he's always up to something in, in, uh, when he gets behind a typewriter. John, are you working on any, because John not only writes fiction, he writes non-fiction books. Or I, I do. I guess I could turn that around and say you not only write nonfiction books, but you write fiction books. So what are you working on these days before we get back to more serious topics?
0: Well, I'm working on a a third of my novels. Uh, These are historical fantasy novels set in early America. This one's called Water Folk, and it's primarily set during the Texas War of Independence and the U.S.- Mexican War the 1840s and that sort of thing so there that's the that's the third book in the series the first one did the Revolutionary War the second one did the war of 1812 and other events in the early early 19th century so I like to tell historical stories I think they have important meanings I'm trying to get people particularly young people well uh, teens and young adults to learn more about their country and if I can if I need to use magic and dragons and giant battles to uh get their attention I will do it
1: uh, uh there ought to be something i could follow up with on that like, last part but i'm going to skip that for the time being to get <laughs> back to give to give, now give, you give didn't us no
0: i bet Dodd that you didn't know there was a giant sea monster in the york river at the battle of yorktown i, I, and, I and if you had read conf- water, if you read mountain folk you would know what happened to the sea monster and whether general cornwallis's sea monster trick worked or not
1: i, I must confess i did not uh, have that at the top of my list when I was doing research. Uh, <laughs> uh, There's something else, John. I can
0: live. I can live with it. I can live with
1: it. Okay. Uh, let's talk about the General Assembly, and uh, there are four topics that we want to get into: the par- uh, the parents' bill of rights legislation, the abortion situation, sports betting, and the transgender-related legislation. Those are four issues that I would. Uh, like for you to share your thoughts and opinions on where the North Carolina General Assembly is going or has already gone?
0: Well, let's start with a bill that's already passed, uh, which is the abortion bill. Uh, This would set, uh, with some exceptions, set a limit of 12 weeks. And so uh, before that time, more or less, the right to abortion would be preserved in North Carolina. After that time, there would be uh, no legal right to abortion, except in a few cases. Uh, abortion would always be permissible under this bill for uh, cases of rape and incest, for example, life, saving the life of the mother. So uh, I think the, the best way to describe this, this is, of course, part of a national drama that began last summer when the US Supreme Court issued its Dobbs decision that overturned Roe versus Wade, the 1973 decision that established a federal right to an abortion. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled last year that there is no federal right to an abortion. It's just not, it's not a matter that the U.S. Constitution speaks to, not because it isn't important, but because it inherently involves a sort of counterclaims of individual rights, a, a pregnant mother's right to control what is happening in her body and an unborn baby's right to life. And that's a dispute, says the court, that is not something this federal court, federal constitution speaks to. And it's something that the states in their constitutions and their laws need to address. That's all the Dobbs decision did. It didn't do anything about abortion. It simply said there's no federal right here. This is not a federal constitutional matter. So that left states the requirement to do nothing, perhaps, or lots of things. Some states, some state legislatures, have gone very far to ban abortions in their states. There's uh, not 100% bans, but virtual bans of abortions in several states. Uh, other states have gone been fairly restrictive with uh, abortion limitations that ended six weeks, a much earlier period. North Carolina didn't do this. North Carolina, uh, there were uh, members of the House and Senate, Republicans, who negotiated with each other. They had different views on this question, and they spent a lot of time together and came up with what they described as a compromise position, the 12-week limitation with some additional rules. And the Democrats were very upset. You can understand why they were upset that they weren't even part of this initial set of negotiations among the Repu- within the Republican caucuses. But they did get their ability to speak and and argue their case on the the legislation in the General Assembly. They didn't prevail. The Republicans have a supermajority. And so they did enact the bill. The governor uh, doesn't favor the bill. The bill is currently, as we speak, it's under federal review. I don't know what, as we speak, I don't know what the federal judge has issued. But I think by the time people listen to this, they may have heard some decision from the federal judge about it. But it won't be the last word. So that's the... It, that's the bill, it has a lot of different provisions that we probably don't have time to get into, and some of which I don't even, it's not even something I know a lot about, but I would describe this bill, this this would reduce the right to abortion in North Carolina somewhat, but not dramatically, that would be my, that would be my take on the bill, uh, but that's not the way some of my Democratic friends uh, see it, so it, it's a controversial issue, it will definitely play a role politically, just as it did in the 2022, Midterm cycle, it will be a major issue in the governor's race, in legislative races, and other races in North Carolina next year. That's the abortion bill—a pretty big deal. Now, the uh, some of these other bills, I I will mention in particular the transgender athletic, the the transgender sports bill, and then the transgender treatment bill. Transgender sports bill, I think, uh, is has happened. It's going to be implemented. I frankly think that. This is where probably the vast majority of North Carolinians are on the question of transgender athletes, which is essentially uh, uh, young people are free to play sports. uh, But if you are biological male, regardless of your gender identity, if you're biological male, you're not going to be allowed to play women's sports in schools or universities uh, for the obvious reason that there are, on average, significant physiological differences between biological males and biological females. People are uncomfortable with the uh, unfairness and potential, even sometimes, safety questions here, and so that's what the legislature did. Doesn't preclude, for example, a biological female from playing on a biological male sport, like being a place kicker on a football team, or whatever. That's not not prohibited, but it is prohibited in the other direction. the The other bill, though, is tougher. This has to do with uh, treating tr- children, you know, minors who identify or have been identified as transgender or uh, non-binary or, or whatever the, the, the statement is, that should they be able to access, for example, drugs that block the onset of, pu- of puberty, or in an extreme case, some sort of surgical intervention. These, we're talking about, not about adults, where the legislature is not attempting to legislate here about what adults can do with their body. This is about minors. Now, obviously, if you didn't have parental consent, this would be a pretty straightforward case. And again, I think the vast majority of North Carolinians would agree that if some minor from Pennsylvania or some other state, you know, leaves home, runs runs away from home, comes to North Carolina and demands surgery or demands puberty blocking drugs or something, uh, that should not be legal, of course, because they're minors and they can't make decisions without parental authority. The tough part here is what if the parents say yes? What if the parents say we would like our 12 year old child to receive a, a puberty blocking drug uh, or a, a surgical intervention or something? Uh, with, is that okay? Because we usually of course defer to parents, what the parents' decisions are about children's health and well-being. we we properly defer to parents. This is where the traditional Republican <laughs> championing of parental rights, runs up against this other Republican and other concerns about, uh, the irreversibility of some of this. If you give someone a puberty blocking drug and it affects their, the way their body develops. And when they're 12, that's what they thought they wanted. And when they're 22, they're devastated to discover, you know, they've decided they've grown out of their feelings of gender dysphoria, which is common. Most my reading of the literature, most young people who experience feelings of dysphoria, feeling like they're like a boy in a girl's body or a girl in a boy's body or something like that, most people grow out of that. What if you did and you were 22 or 23 and you wanted to have a child, you're biological female, and because of some uh, pharmaceuticals that you ingested earlier in your life, it made it impossible? Uh, what if you were male, biological male, and went through a period of where you felt dysphoric, you had some... Uh, You took some pharmaceuticals and they affected your voice, your development of your uh, private parts, and that affected the quality of your life. That's the difficulty here. What if these decisions have irreversible effects? At some level, say some of the advocates of this bill, the legislature, the state should intervene even if parents want something done, if the results could be life changing, life altering like this. This is a tough issue. But I'm afraid at this point it's an inescapable issue, and so that's where that—that's what that bill is about. It. I think listeners should really kind of struggle with this bill because it's—it can't be. I don't think it has as obvious an answer as the athlete bill does. I mean, I still have an opinion about it. I'm just saying it's a much more uh, difficult issue. Finally, you mentioned the gaming bill. This is the the sports gambling bill that has passed, uh, essentially. It is now going to be legal in North Carolina to bet on games, bet on college football games. Uh, I am a advocate of personal liberty, so I, I'm generally sympathetic to legalizing gambling, but I'm not happy about it because I'm anti-gambling. You know, you you get to be in a free society. You get to believe that people have the right to do something that is bad for them. You know, and that's what I think is true here. I think that gambling. Uh, can I think some people become addicted to it and blow lots of money. I think everybody that does it, I think it somewhat cheapens the the uh, play of sports to have all this money riding on. I don't like it. I would never do it. It's none of my business to tell somebody else what to do. But I am sad that this bill will likely encourage some people to blow their money, waste their money gambling on sports. But uh, I have to be consistent that I, I think... There are many things that are legal that I think are dumb, (laughs) and it is not, It is my view is that it's not my role, it's not the role of any group of people in a free society to prevent other adults, again, we were talking about minors earlier, that's kind of a different, more challenging issue, but I don't think adults can be nannied by the state, even if they deserve to be, I just don't think that's the appropriate role of the state, so that's my view about that bill. And about a related push, there hasn't really been clarity about this yet, but there has been some talk of legalizing additional casinos and having more casino gambling around North Carolina. Uh, Again, I I don't like special favors. I don't like giving certain groups or certain parts of the state the ability to have a casino and other places not have them. I don't like any of that. Uh, That's the system that, that we've sort of stumbled our way into, I'm afraid. Now, the
1: Lottery Commission will be in charge of the sports betting, so the state of North Carolina will gain revenue.
0: Yeah, I mean, again, when there is a business going on that I'm not a big fan of, but it's none of my business what people do, of course, they should; those businesses should be taxed just like any other business. That's not what this does. This, this sports gambling bill has gives the state a pretty large financial stake in gambling which i don't like that either that's one of the reasons i didn't like a state lottery i mean that is not legalizing gambling that is the government encouraging people to gamble and making money off of it which i'm opposed to and that part of this bill i would have been opposed to as well
1: interesting well those are four uh, pieces of legislation that are either have in some cases have been passed in other cases still under consideration and as we said earlier uh probably at the end of this legislative session session there will be a special session to consider the redistricting matters and so the general assembly will be in session one way or the other probably till maybe as late as november
0: it, well maybe i mean it's, it's going to this official session will end i should say by the way on the gambling bill is a good example of where not everything is strictly partisan There were uh, Democrats and Republicans for the gambling bill and against the gambling.
1: Yeah. Our guest is John Hood. And of course, as you know, John has been with us a number of times. We have one final segment and I want to talk to you about polling amongst other things in the final segment. And we will talk about that as well as uh, maybe a brief look at the North Carolina economy, population growth and how North Carolina stacks up nationally on on uh, on our growth and what it's going to do to affect the future of north carolina and we'll do that when we come back with the final segment of carolina newsmakers
0: well jason i've got to tell you you're pretty much everything this company is looking for in an entry-level candidate great your resume isn't quite what we're used to but you've got a fantastic work ethic thank you and i'm impressed by how you carry yourself so should we talk about the job uh, what the job Oh, sorry. Yeah, I have no way of recruiting or even meeting you. This interview didn't happen. It may sound
1: ridiculous, and that's because it kind of is. There's a huge pool of talent your company is missing out on. Meet the grads of life. Who are they? Talent worth knowing about. Young adults of unique determination and experience. An ideal fit for your company in an entry-level position, internship, or even mentorship. They might not have every qualification you typically look for, but they're exactly who your company needs. Man, we really could have used him. Don't miss out on a resource many innovative companies have already discovered. Go to gradsoflife.org to learn how to find, cultivate, and train this great pool of untapped talent. Brought to you by the Ad Council and gradsoflife.org. The possibility of lung cancer can be pretty scary, especially if you're one of approximately 8 million current or former smokers at high risk. That's why SaveByThescan.org wants you to know that now there's a breakthrough low dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early, and it only takes 60 seconds. You stop smoking, now start screening. For an easy quiz to see if you're eligible, visit SaveByThescan.org. It could save your life. SaveByThescan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council.
0: Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis.
1: We're back on Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest is John Hood. Those of you who listen to the program know that he's been our guest on this program for many, many times. Uh, John, of course, is, uh, uh, is a proud conservative, and he, uh, I, I always state where my guests are coming from because we like to have guests that uh, uh, represent both points of view from time to time. Uh, but I think it's important for the guests to know exactly where they're coming from. Uh, and so we always point that out. John, we were talking about uh, the the way that the American people are looking uh, at uh, politics and government. And as you pointed out, we are very polarized these days, or at least the polling says that. Now, I would like your view and opinion on polling because we're finding out in our polling Uh, And radio stations do a lot of polling about what kind of music we play and who listens to what stations and so forth. But we're finding people are more and more resistant to uh, participating in polling. So my concern about polling is, are the people who are participating, do they represent an average viewpoint wherever they're coming from? Or are they uniquely different to the point that the polling may be
0: misleading? Well, that's a great question. It's a question that people in the polling industry are struggling with. Oh yes, Um, and and one of the things, one of the reasons they're struggling. I mean, you're a client, so you know this. Because people become less and less have become less and less likely to answer phones, or even respond to emails. Actually, even to the online panel approach, um, it is becoming more and more expensive to get somebody's opinion, an individual's opinion. So, if you're trying to poll 800 people. It costs a lot more to get to that 800 people than it used to because you have to call so many more people. You have to send so many more emails out. So it is more expensive to do polling at a grand scale. One of the ways that pollsters have c- cope with that is reduce the size of the, the, the length of the questionnaire, which means they don't get into enough detail. Or they go for a really a fairly small sample size, which means that the margin of sampling error is quite large. Or, and this is the biggest problem, they essentially abandon truly randomized polling in the first place. They recruit people to get to a certain panel that they think represents the public. But because it wasn't truly random, the selection of the individual you're interviewing wasn't truly random, it's not really a scientifically represented, it's not a really representative poll. So even saying that there's a margin of sampling error is incorrect. You can't have a sampling error if the sample is not itself actually (laughs) random. And so you'll notice that a lot of pollsters today, they don't say that the margin of error, they say the confidence interval. And that is a little bit of a, frankly, a kind of a fudge word. It's not meaningless, but it suggests that these polls are not quite as representative as they may have been in the past. Now, all that having been said, this is going to sound kind of weird, but the poll you should worry about the least, you still worry about it. But the polls you should worry about the least are those about the presidential election. Because lots of people follow that. They have some meaningful opinion about it. And there are people who, if they get a sense that somebody's going to ask them about their beloved President Biden or their beloved President Trump, they will take your call. They will answer the email. Yep. It's actually harder to get people to answer questions about, you know, Do you favor or oppose Joe Blow for attorney general? They don't know that they didn't even know you elected attorney general. They never heard of Joe Blow. Some of them don't answer at all. The ones that do answer, it's purely random. They don't even really mean it. And so a lot of the polls about things like obscure races, uh, congressional races, and issues, you ask people in great detail about House Bill 253 or something, they don't know what you're talking about. They have absolutely no idea unless they're a weirdo like me and they follow politics very closely. And so then you have to tell them what it's about. And once you start telling people, I'm going to ask you about the North Carolina General Assembly's recently enacted abortion ban. Or I'm going to ask you about North Carolina's recently enacted restrictions on late term abortions. You say, I just described that legislation in two different ways. If you describe it as a ban, you're going to get people who don't follow the issue very closely. They're like ban. I'm not in favor of banning all abortions. And if you say restrictions on late term abortion, which is primarily what the bill does, then people say, oh, well, I'm for that. I mean, I don't like abortions, you know, in the later in the pregnancy. And so once you start telling in, quote, informing your respondents about issues they don't follow very closely or races they don't follow very closely, you're kind of monkeying around with the results.
1: You can yeah, guide it, people one it, way or the other, and it would seem to me that people who are already polarized strongly one way or the other will be far more interested in participating in polling than those who are still maybe questioning which way they believe.
0: That's true. It's it's e- easier to get hardcore partisans. Or at least that's what people thought. Now, one recent clear polling error has been under sampling Trump supporters. So these are hardcore political people. And they have such a level of distrust of media organizations and universities in particular, uh, because they see both properly is sort of significantly left of center in their average orientation. So they get a a poll question or they get a phone call from a university or a media outlet, and they just don't take it. And then you don't have a certain kind of Republican. You still get Republicans that will take the call, but maybe ones who are less Trump supportive and so you, you in, end up sort of somewhat under uh, undercounting Trump support. That has been a problem in the past. I don't know if it'll be, but it, uh, pollsters have tried to adjust for that by weighting their their sample accordingly. Pollsters have weighted, that is, uh, multiplied their not their respondents by various uh, percentages. They've done that for decades. Okay, even back in the so-called good old days of polling. Uh, Not everybody was equally likely to be home at their landline between the, before cell phones, I mean, people were not equally likely to be home between the hours of, you know, six and nine on a weeknight when polling used to happen all the time. For example, people who work nights, people who go to school at night, elderly people who go to bed at 530, you know. And so they were under sampled. And so the pollsters had to adjust for that. That was always the case. They adjusted for race sometimes, they adjusted for age, they adjusted for a variety of things. Now they have to do so many other kinds of adjustments to try to get their sample to be, quote, representative, that a lot of times that sort of determines what their poll says. And everybody gets suspicious because it looks like they're monkeying around with the numbers. They actually have to do some of that or it, the polling is useless. But once they start doing that, it's hard to stop. And so I know yeah. when you're when you're commissioning market research for radio stations or companies commissions, survey results for brands, it's becoming increasingly expensive because people don't want to answer polls. And because you've moved to online panels, which is understandable, it's a lot cheaper to do that. Send somebody an email and say, opt in and we'll ask you these questions. And if you take the poll, we'll give you a five dollar gift certificate or something. The problem there is that you probably don't get a representative sample either. There are certain kinds of people who will respond to random emails from somebody they don't know offering them a $5 coupon, (laughs) and so they have to wait those samples too. So it's it's a tough thing, but here's what I would say about polarization more generally. We are at the same time clearly polarized on a partisan basis, and we are subject to too much hand-wringing about polarization. And let me let me explain what I mean. Um, lots of people have a strong preference for the political party, particularly when it comes to the presidency. That's true. And there's just there are fewer people willing to split their tickets than there was a generation or two ago. We used to routinely have you know, many people who would vote Republican for president, Democrat for governor, Democrat for president, Republican for Senate or whatever. And that happens, still happens today, but it's a much smaller population. That's a way of thinking about polarization, that the base vote for the R, the base vote for the D is rather high. But when you say, well, we're all polarized on all these issues, actually, that is not so much true. Lots of people have to sort of be cajoled into taking a position. Abortion is a good example where many people's views are rather complicated, uh, that they have sort of conflicting views. Principles they're trying to resolve in their own heads, they have stipulations, they're not sure what the definitions are, they don't know the difference between a 12-week and a 10-week and an eight-week and a six-week. That when we force people to take positions about issues that are fraught with complexity like abortion, or issues they just don't follow very closely. Should, should we have a cryptocurrency or not? Should uh should we have free trade agreements with the with Japan and Korea, that sort of thing. Lots of people don't think lots about these issues very often. And so when you poll them, you'll get an answer, but you shouldn't assume those are really hard numbers. If you've asked the question a different way, you might get a different answer. And next week, you might get a different answer. So a lot of these polls that suggest that Americans, North Carolinians, are completely divided on all these issues and there's no middle ground. That's not true. That's the, the polls in those cases are exaggerating the polarization. They're exaggerating the differences because they're sort of artificially making people take a view, choose between two alternatives, and it doesn't really reflect how they really feel. And maybe they don't feel at all, very much about the issue at all.
1: John, we got about a minute and a half for you to com- uh, comment on a, a thing that is going to be dominating the news in a big way in the next couple of years. Uh, and i I'd like you to sort of condense your thoughts to about a minute and a half, because that's about all we've got left. Okay. And that's the term artificial intelligence.
0: It's scary. Well, it's scary for most people. For me, I'm looking forward to getting some intelligence artificially, which which <laughs> I've obviously okay. always needed, or so says you know Mrs. Hood. Yep. Um, no, I, I think AI is a... Is an inevitable development. People, science fiction authors have been speculating about this for a hundred years. So people who are trying to wrap their I've never thought of that before. They just need to read more science fiction. But this has been explored many, many times already. What does it mean? It means that many things will get a lot easier to do. We will have tremendous benefits from this: health benefits, economic benefits, gains in productivity. It will be fantastic. Except. It also poses significant risks: privacy risks, risks of displacing people from jobs. that They'll find other jobs, but it'll be difficult in the short run. And there are some dehumanizing aspects of AI that we're going to have to grapple with. But I think it's inevitable. I think it does bring significant benefits. We will have to think very carefully about our policy responses to it. And just speaking as someone who teaches at university level, we also have to change the way we teach and how we test because AI will make it too easy to cheat
1: interesting well john uh, we're going to hear a lot about this in the next couple of years and it's going to be interesting to see how we progress in the area of of, of controlling artificial intelligence our guest has been john hood and uh, john we certainly appreciate you being with us if you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast or share it with a friend you can do so by going to com. That's carolinanewsmakers.com. Those of you who are listening to the half-hour version, there are two segments that you missed, and you can pick those up on Carolina Newsmakers. Our program has been produced by Jason Kong, and he promises me that he'll have another interesting guest again next week on the same group of stations all across North Carolina. Again, that uh, web address is carolinanewsmakers.com. So, the next week, have a good week, everybody.